come to the end of the book of Genesis that we have been uh, preaching through. We're going to read the end of chapter 49 and the whole of chapter 50. Uh, before that, I'm going to read a brief uh, extract from Luke chapter 1, verse 67 to 75, so I'll read that, read that beforehand. So uh, give careful attention to God's word. This is his word that he speaks to you today from his holy mountain. God's word. Luke chapter 1. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath, that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Genesis 49, verse 29 on to end of chapter 50. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the, Pharaoh, the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their flocks, their children, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshold of the floor Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mitzrayim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought from the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. 
After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So to bring it about that many peoples should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but... God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being a hundred and ten years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for sustaining us. Thank you for calling us each Lord's Day to hear your word. Thank you that we have had the privilege of hearing this um, series through Genesis. And we pray that as this story comes to a conclusion, that uh, what it points to would edify us, that as we see the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so clearly portrayed, that we would be filled with the same hope and faith of these fathers which is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So be with us this morning hour. Help us to set aside our distractions and to listen to your word, where you speak to us from heaven now. We ask this, that we'd be edified and that you'd be glorified for the sake of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So I'm not sure if you've had the experience where you've gone to see a, a movie or read a book that someone's recommended. You don't know anything about it beforehand. But you watch this movie and there's a, there's a plot to it and there's the tension in the narrative builds and eventually by the time you get to the end of the movie, there's a kind of resolution, but it also ends on a bit of a cliffhanger and then you realize, oh wait, this is not a discrete isolated story, this is part one in a, in a bigger story, a bigger narrative. Well, that's what we have here today, a lot of the narrative tension that is built up through the book of, um, of Genesis, and especially in the Joseph story, as we've been going over the last 14 chapters or so, is now appears to have a kind of resolution, but also not. Uh, and so we're going to see that the function of the ending of this book is both to show that God has in part done what he has said, but also will in the future complete what he has promised to do. Well, there's many ways that we can try and talk about how this text relates to the book of Genesis as a whole. But maybe one of the best is 
in terms of summing up the book of Genesis is to contrast how the, this chapter ends, how the book ends with how it began. Genesis began in the Garden of Eden, where there was great life. God's people had uh, abundance. It started in a garden with God's presence, where they, they were where they were meant to be, uh, that they had the joy of being God's creatures and, and living with his, with his presence. But the book ends in a coffin in a foreign land. So being in a garden in Eden is being contrasted with ending up in a coffin in Egypt. That something happened between the beginning and the end of the book, which is that man sinned against God and was plunged into sin and, and death. This is the way it ends, a kind of to be continued scene. Because the words of the beginning of Genesis, in the beginning, now contrasted with in Egypt. God has still got something to do to fulfill his promise to Abraham. And so we're going to see how this points forward to what God is going to do in the rest of redemptive history. Well, Jacob is about to die. And the way he reflects on this is not simply that he is going to die, but he, he expresses this as he is going to be gathered to his people. And this is repeated twice at the start of this uh, subsection of the text. I am to be gathered to my people. And then when he dies, it says he was gathered to his people after he breathed his last. Now, this gathering to the people is not simply a euphemism for death. It expresses that there is belief in something beyond death. Jacob, somehow, by faith, had a belief in an intermediate state, meaning in the state of still being alive somehow and hoping for resurrection. This is actually what the preacher to the Hebrews, as we've mentioned a couple times the last few weeks, said about the saints that of the Old Testament, that these fathers saw and looked towards a heavenly city by faith. Now, this stands in quite stark contrast to Egyptian conceptions of embalming, which we're going to talk about a little bit, that produces some kind of immortality of some unknown kind of state. Whereas Abraham and Isaac and Jacob... Jacob believes will be reunited in death, which is interesting. Now, he says that the text says when he died, he was gathered to his people. This is a, a, a passive verb. This is something that was done to him. God came and took him to be with his people. And he sees himself as continuing in the very same line of the faith of Abraham and Isaac. Now notice how Abraham and Sarah were buried, Isaac with Rebekah, and Leah ends up elevated to this status of being buried with him as, as he anticipates by faith the resurrection. You see, he wanted to be buried where his father and grandfather were buried. Now, Jacob ends up receiving at Joseph's command an embalming. Now, there's two parts to this. One, there's a practical reason for his embalming. Firstly, he wants to be taken up to the land and be buried. But with the period of time that that's going to take, his body needs to be preserved uh, to travel. The other is that there's an extraordinary kind of honor that is conferred upon him 
by, by Pharaoh, uh, essentially by permission. So what this means is, uh, in addition to Egypt kind of uh, honoring him uh, as as as, as he has done so far, the, the Pharaoh has said, I will, you will have the best of the land. Now in his death, Pharaoh is, is still looking to seek to care and honor uh, Jacob. So he, he's going to be embalmed. Now, this process takes about 40 days. A person's uh, organs are removed and they are preserved in a kind of resin and then wrapped and then subjected to a kind of uh, heat, and then the, so the process takes, takes a total of 40 days. But in addition to this honor of being embalmed as a symbol of something connected to the afterlife, the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. Uh, we occasionally see a state funeral, and we think, wow, this is quite an extraordinary thing where for a couple of hours all these people gather and, and pay tribute to this person. This is a very serious state funeral, one where the, the people weep for the family for 70 days. Now, what's significant about this number is that the Egyptian state funeral for Pharaoh is 72 days of weeping. I remember we said that Pharaoh blessed uh, Jacob, uh, it was, was good to him, but saw that, and then received a blessing from Jacob, kind of recognizing that Jacob was this other king. And so even in how the Egyptians are treating him here, Pharaoh in his death still treats Jacob like a king. Quite an amazing thing. But when the days were, uh, of weeping were, were past, Joseph then approached Pharaoh's household and said, If I have found favor in your eyes, which means you know that I have been good to Pharaoh's household, so please do this for me. Say to Pharaoh, I've promised my father I want to, uh, that I would bury him in Canaan. Let, let me go and then I will return. Uh, we will see in, the, in a couple of centuries that the people ask to go and the Pharaoh at that time is not going to be willing to let them go. But here, he's not only willing to let them go, he sends them with a big procession, a big Egyptian funeral procession of chariots and horses. In the future, the, the, the next pharaoh or the pharaoh later on will send horses and chariots to try and annihilate God's people. But for here, with this pharaoh, he sends them with Joseph and his dead father Jacob uh, to, to bless them, that they can go and bury um, Jacob in, in Canaan. Well, what's also particularly interesting about this, leaving up to Canaan, is that they don't take the normal short trade route, which one would take. They go on an extended journey through right by the Jordan. And so what we're seeing here is a little mini exodus, a foretaste of what's going to come in the centuries ahead. Now, as Jacob takes his, uh, sorry, as Joseph takes his, his father up to bury him in Canaan, essentially what we have is a, is a, is a prefiguring, a, a pre-picture of the exodus that is going to come. Right? The nation of Israel, as it will be at that time, will experience an exodus where they will leave uh, uh, the land of Egypt and victoriously, they will enter the land of Canaan and displace the enemies there that God would establish them as a kingdom people. Uh, the, 
the time of the patriarchs now at Jacob's death has come to an end. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have now all died. And we have a transition in what God is doing in, in redemptive history in his people. We move away from this lineage of the, of, the, of the three fathers, the patriarchs, and we move to the era of the 12 tribes. Jacob's 12 tribes and were his, his offspring. And they have been established as tribes a couple chapters ago. Remember, we read how Jacob conferred blessing or conferred what each one deserved, uh, saying what, they will, what will happen to them and, and essentially prophesying the future of each of these 12 tribes and what's going to happen in history. But we have one last glimpse left of the covenant family before this era draws to a close. And that is that after they have done the funeral procession and come back, guilt rears its ugly head again. And the brothers think, you know, he said that he forgave us, but it was because he didn't want to cause our father distress. Now that our father has died, maybe he's going to come and get us. We, we're going to get our comeuppance. We're going to get what we deserve. Well, Joseph's role, as we've said so far, in the covenant family has been one where he has been called by God to preserve the people of God for the future. But not only just that, but to establish peace and reconciliation in that covenant family so that they may successfully live in the land and that God's purposes will be accomplished in history. So So Joseph does exactly the same thing again here now because they say to him, Our father said to us, forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And so they beg and they say, this is what our father said. And now now forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. They are calling on Jacob's God. They are invoking his name to say to Joseph, for his sake, forgive us. Now it says that Joseph wept when he heard this. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why. I mean, perhaps he was sad that they didn't trust him, that they hadn't accepted his forgiveness that he'd already spoken. Or perhaps he had pity and compassion on them for their, their, their weak consciences. But either way, he wept and he says to them what he had said once before. Do not fear. Do not continue in your guilt And what does he say in connection with why he shouldn't fear? Am I in the place of God? Am I going to counteract God's purposes and seek to kill you when the very purpose for us being here is that what you did to me is that God wanted to sustain life? So he said, I'm not in the place of God. That's his rhetorical question. Am I in the place of God? And here we issue a very important a statement in, in the whole of Genesis that begins to, to wrap up what has happened in this Joseph narrative and speaks to the whole future of what God will do in redemptive history. He says, as for you, meaning on your part, you meant evil against me. Yes, as my father said, you did evil against me. But God meant it for good. 
And he meant it to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He says, look, we have been preserved through the famine by God's work, what he has done here. And that's why he repeats it. So do not fear. This is what God's plan is. So I'm not going to act against that. I will provide for you and for your little ones. In other words, if God's intent was to preserve you, you can guarantee I'm not going against God's purposes. And this was just the comfort and the kindness that they needed. In other words, he solidified the reconciliation that had taken place in the covenant family. And they dwell securely, fed, in fellowship, reconciled, in union with one another. But it runs deeper than just that. See, this is not just Joseph's assurance of temporal provision for them, but it's to point them to the fact that it is God who did all of this. In other words, this is bigger than what you did to me. The bigger question is, what is God doing? And that's what real comfort looks like. Because they're going to suffer in the centuries ahead. And as the covenant family, as God's people, they need something as the object of faith. And Joseph rightly points them to God for the years ahead and said, no, God is the one who's accomplishing something. And this, this is exactly the fuel the people will need for the suffering they will experience in the generations ahead. The same God that protected the fathers will also protect us as the tribes as we await God's deliverance. And as God's people, this is something that that we surely need as well, the kind of assurance that we need, because as things happen to us, we may be tempted to question whether revenge is being taken on us by God or why are these things happening to me. But really, just as Joseph is doing for his brothers here and pointing them to, to God, God also sent his own son who testifies to you that whatever happens to you, God's purpose is ultimately to preserve you, which we read in the gospel reading today, that God will preserve you and that he will ultimately bring about the inheritance that he has promised. And this idea of assurance is precisely what the people would need, both in their suffering and oppression in Egypt and in their wandering in the desert that is to come. So as we've mentioned, Jacob's funeral procession out of, Jacob, out of Egypt and into Canaan is essentially an early picture of several hundred years later of this exodus that is to come. And in the same way that, that God ensured Jacob was buried in Canaan and gathered to his father, God will lead his people out of Egypt and into Canaan in the Exodus. And when he does that, he will fulfill his promise to Abraham, which is the great hope of God's people. Yet even that Exodus, see, there was a mini Exodus here when Jacob was taken up and buried by, by Joseph in, in Canaan. But the, the bigger Exodus that's to come a couple hundred years later is not even the final Exodus because the people do not remain and dwell in the land in perpetuity. So what are we getting here is a pointing to some kind of ultimate exodus. 
an ultimate deliverance where God's people are going to come and deliver, where God's people are going to be delivered from bondage and oppression and sin. So in that way, Jacob, and what happens to him, tells us something about the ministry of Christ. That he is going to come and, and take his people up out of Egypt and into Canaan. Out of the bondage of sin and death, the kingdom of darkness, and into the kingdom of light. In that way, Christ has come and died and raised from the dead so that the New Testament tells us that he has actually entered that land of Canaan for us first, the promised land. Right, a seed of the promise. Uh, Paul says that actually Christ in us is the seed of the new creation and the hope of glory. Uh, why this is important is because where Jacob had gone, his people would ultimately follow in the future. That was God's promise. And so it is. With our greater Jacob, Christ, where he has gone, his people, you, will go as well. You will go where he has gone, into the new creation. You will inherit with him all that is within it. The kingdoms of this world and the age to come will be yours along with Christ. So this mini exodus is pointing to us what the Lord will ultimately do. Uh, for us in Jesus Christ. And after this, we come to verses uh, 22 uh, to 26 that recount the death of Joseph, Jacob's favorite son. Now, this is the closing scene of Genesis. Uh, he's lived 110 years. This, this text repeats that for us twice here. Joseph lived 110 years, and then in verse 26, so Joseph died being 110 years old. Now, the significance of that and why it's being repeated is because that's an important number. To the Egyptians, that was the ideal length of life. And so this man came and uh, took up residence in Egypt, was treated as a king, essentially became the prime minister, lived the perfect life kind of in, in, in Egypt. They were protected and fed and owned uh, property and, and great possessions and so on. And he had a full life, right? He's seen the great, great grandchildren uh, of, of Ephraim and, uh, and the, and the great-grandchildren of Manasseh. And it says that Jacob had adopted, uh, uh, Joseph had adopted some of his grandchildren in the same way that Jacob adopted some of his grandchildren. So there's a, an echoing of the same kind of uh, life and character and, and faith and so on. But it is his, the fact that his life has come to an end. And so what does he do, what does he do in that? See, God has preserved him, and he comes to the end of his life. And now he says his words, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And on that basis, he makes them swear that his bones should be carried up to that land as well. So let's look at that. Joseph's deathbed instructions here are, are another true act of faith that we see right at the end of, of the book of Genesis. He says that God will visit them and bring them up out of the land of Egypt and into the land that was prophesied and promised 
uh, to, to, by God to Abraham, but also prophetically, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were buried in that land as a symbol of promise for that they are going to go and take possession of it. So when Joseph says, he will visit you, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, this is a direct prophecy of the Exodus that's about to happen. And at the same time, a a, a deeper promise of deliverance and inheritance and conquering of enemies. And the way to think about this is that this statement that he makes, that God will visit you and deliver you, bring you up out of this land, that is the entire redemptive hope of the book of Genesis. Since the fall, the hope of redemption has been anticipated. And here it is promised, God will visit you. God will visit you. And when he does, you are to take my bones up with you. And that's exactly what happens. Moses says, this is what we're going to do. He makes his brothers, as the heads of the covenant family, promise to bury him in Canaan as Jacob had done. The same faith of Jacob is the faith of Joseph. He knew the destination was the same. And we can't make sense of this. We can't make sense of this desire that I have to be where the fathers have been buried unless he expects by faith a resurrection. Genesis 3 exposited the results of sin, which was that man will return to dust. But Jacob and Joseph after him had a hope of being made alive again. That God is going to do something through this exodus that will will cause a resurrection from the dead. What's interesting is what foundation do they have to believe that God is going to raise them from the dead? Why would Joseph think, no, it's important for my bones to go up there because I'm going to be with the fathers and be raised from the dead? Um, why, why would he think that this is possible? None of these guys lived a life that was worthy of being resurrected. None of them lived a life that was worthy of justification before God. We know that from Adam's failure to obey in their garden, it made it impossible for anybody to live a life that is justified. How can God look upon any of these fathers? How can he look upon uh, Jacob, who had lied and cheated and shown favoritism. How is, this, how is this possible? Well, that's the nature of true faith, is that they looking, as the writer to the Hebrews, the little preacher to the Hebrews says, they were looking forward to, to, they have a hope, right, that is based on God's promise, based on God's righteousness, based on God's faithfulness, not on their own life. Of perfection. See, only one person has lived a life that merited being raised from the dead in holiness, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. But we know that the Old Testament was the, the, the hope, the promise that was made to these fathers and to those who followed after them in faith was the substance was Jesus Christ. And so that's the nature of true faith. It looks forward to the righteous one. 
Even though they didn't know that this would be the Messiah at this stage, they looked forward in faith. In other words, Jacob was looking forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the substance of God's promise to Abraham. And this is certified to us when it says, to the, the preacher of the Hebrews writes, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So the preacher to the Hebrews connects this faith of Joseph with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That by making mention of the Exodus, he was looking forward to something future to come. And with that, Jacob died, and like, uh, sorry, Joseph died, and like Jacob, he was embalmed and put in a coffin, not buried, but awaiting his Exodus along with God's people. And as we come here and read the last words, the last words in the book of Genesis are in Egypt. God's people have not obtained their inheritance that was sworn to them, sworn to Abraham. But rather now, the 12 tribes find themselves entirely outside the land of promise. But this is also, even though this is not their ultimate place, this is a partial fulfillment of what God promised to Abraham. Because, what did he say? They would first be sojourners in a land that wasn't theirs. And in that way, we have ended this book with the resolution of the, the, the issue of the last 14 chapters, which was the potential starvation and death and ending of the covenant line of promise, where God has provided a way of escape and has, although they are outside of the land that he promised to them, he has preserved them and kept them alive. So that has resolved the tension in that part of the narrative. But it hasn't resolved the question of why are they not yet in the land? They are outside of the land of promise. So the book of Genesis ends in a way that clearly sets us up for part two of the series. An exodus that needs to come. And what will happen at that time? Well, Joseph has said, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. Now, the, the details of that are not provided there. But we know that God will visit his people and through a redemptive judgment will take them up out of bondage. He will punish the wicked and deliver his people into their promised land. But meanwhile, Joseph has said to them, you must wait, essentially, until he comes, sustained by the same faith of our fathers. And the summons to faith in this same God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that Joseph gives to his brothers. Genesis is also a summons to us to have this same hope of exodus, of deliverance, of resurrection. Similar to how the 12 tribes are going to experience their next couple hundred years of existence, we are not yet where we belong. We await with the saints of Genesis the, the heavenly city, the new creation. What differs for us, though, is that we have seen the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has delivered us from the power of sin and death. But he will come again with glory to deliver us from even the presence of sin. 
and he will deliver us into the realm of the new creation. The, the, the completion of the, fulfillment, of the fulfillment of what God had promised to Abraham in Genesis. You see, now Joseph knew, as we mentioned, that the covenant family would need reassurance of the promise. And that's what he says to them twice. God will visit you and bring you up out of the land. And indeed, God has visited his people. What the saints of the Old Testament didn't know, though, is that when Joseph was prophesying that God will visit his people, that Joseph was, through faith, looking down through time and seeing God coming to visit his people. But that, that happened in multiple stages. And for us, we know that God came and visited and took this people up out of Egypt. But we also know that the Lord Jesus Christ descended from heaven, became born of a woman, and visited his people. That's what Zechariah prophesied. And we read that in Luke chapter 1, that he has visited us in his song. So Christ, in his incarnation, has taken up flesh and dwelt among his people. God has visited his people. And he paid the penalty for sin and purified uh, and made righteous those who believe in him. But we also, like these uh, saints of the Old Testament, we live in an age where God's promise has not yet completely been fulfilled because Christ is still to return. He is still to visit his people one last time. And when he does, he will descend from heaven. And in redemptive judgment, he will judge his enemies. He will judge our enemies. And he will deliver us from even this presence of sin and death in this age and into our inheritance in the age to come. But the comfort that we are left is, with is much greater than the comfort that Joseph left his family with. Because we not only have the promise of the return of Christ, but we have a down payment of that return of Christ. Because he has given his Holy Spirit to us. And that is why Jesus said, behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. And so we await that day with earnest saying, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that we live in the era of redemptive history that we do, that we have seen the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ having descended from heaven to procure redemption for us, to pay the penalty for sin, to live a perfect life. That we have a, like the saints of the Old Testament, we have a basis for belief in the resurrection of the dead and the return of your son. That because of the promise that you made to Abraham, you are fulfilling that in the Lord Jesus Christ, having given him as a gift that uh, he might pay for sin and, and provide righteousness. So we have a great comfort. Uh, and we, we stand in the same faith as these people that you have uh, cared for, that you preserved. And that ultimately we have received this exodus from uh, the, the bondage of sin. And we will receive an exodus from the presence of sin and our enemies. That the Lord Jesus Christ has gone ahead into the new creation as a forerunner. And so that we know that where he has gone, we as his people 
will go there also. So help us to be comforted by this, this great hope. Help us to live in light of this great hope for our good and for your glory, knowing that you have worked all things out for those purposes. And we praise you and thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <coughs>